why aren't you working as hard as me? Yeah, yeah. You young whippersnappers. But I would never... <laughs> you young whippersnappers. I am a boomer, aren't I? <laughs> Welcome to season two of The Reflection. We started this series in March 2020 after the announcement of the lockdown and COVID-19 began to change the world. For 20 weeks, academics, activists and journalists joined us to discuss everything from the UK government's mishandling of the pandemic, the growth of conspiracies, Black Lives Matter and what it was like to bear witness to the growth of existing local and global inequalities. For this season, our guests will be reflecting on the political climate of the past year and we'll be talking to authors who have released books in 2020 concerning matters of race and class. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Reflection Series, the series where we talk about race, class, politics over the past year. Also the series where we talk to sociologists, academics, journalists, organisers, activists that have produced critical interventions over the past year. Today we are actually joined by Surviving Society alumni and our good friend, Dr. Rima Saini, who is a lecturer in race in the School of Law at Middlesex University. She is sociology programme co-leader. She's a trustee of the British Sociological Association. She is the Social Policy Research Centre co-director. She's a specialist in race, class, statistics and the South Asian middle classes. Rima, look at that. Credentials. Wow, it's a long list. It is a long list. list. (laughs) And also, like, Surviving Society listeners that have been on the journey with us the past sort of three to four years will remember that Rima's been on the show before. And last last time Rima was on the show, it was before you had finished your PhD. And now you're a big woman with all these credentials. I (laughs) I mean, you know, I did not expect to even sort of pursue a career in academia. Frankly, at that point, I was just trying to sort of enjoy what I was doing, um, finish my PhD, of course. At that time, this was before the pandemic, before everything started popping off. 2018, it was when we last spoke. Well, some stuff had started popping off, Brexit and so on and so forth. Um, But it was a very, very different time. And, you know, I was very, very centred on the PhD at that point. And I wasn't even entirely sure whether I wanted to pursue a career in it. But, you know, it's sort of come to fruition now. And it's difficult. It's hard. We can get into that. But I'm I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really sort of glad of, of where I am right now. You'll get a lot of early career researchers who I think have these multiple titles and these multiple roles. And it's really because, especially when you're a woman of colour, you're just trying to establish yourself in the field Um, you're trying to put your name to as many things as you can get engaged in as much as you can and take some agency over what you're doing and what the discourses are Um, so I think that's sort of reflective of of where I am at the moment I completely agree Rima particularly with the sort of like the different kind of credentials that you're trying to get or do achieve like one of the things that I've been thinking about more recently, particularly after submitting my PhD, is I was saying to these guys and saying to my friends as well, do you think I'm a serious person? Mm. I keep asking people that. <laughs> <laughs> like, as in, do you think I'm a loaded question? Do you think I'm a serious person? <laughs> and like, everyone laughs when I say that. And I'm like, that's because I don't think people think I'm a serious person, but I am a serious person. No, so I yeah. completely. But it, it depends what, in what context you're talking about, right? Like, when it comes to doing what you do, right? Both of you, when it comes to being organised and doing what you're doing, you're serious, right? That's what you mean by a serious person, to be taken seriously by your peers. And you are, right? Yeah. Oh my God, we're getting right into it already, aren't we? <laughs> but like, I, when Rima was talking that I was thinking, I do think it's just so much harder for us to be to be taken seriously. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. You worry about how you come across, how you sound, what you dress, what you dress like. 
how much you laugh even, you know, how much you are willing to say, okay, that's fine, that's good enough, you know, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. where the perfectionist tendencies come in because you've always got this narrative at the back of your head that people think I'm just sort of a silly girl who's beyond her depth essentially, I think. But also like... My question to people, like, do you think I'm a serious person, is also coupled with, I want to be, like, silly. And, like, I do want to be, like, playful. And I do want to be, like... So it's really hard. Like, I do... Right, so listen. So when I see you, right, and both of you, it's about your personality, right? How how true, how authentic you are. Mm. So you can be serious and still be... How you are now. So when you do the podcast and you're making bookings and all that, you're still, still serious, but you're still jokey. And that's part of your technique almost. But that's the balance, isn't it? And Mm. I guess in academia, when you do stuff or when you present Mm. yourself in a way that isn't kind of sort of straight, Mm. do you know what I mean by straight? Yeah. Then it can be... It can be challenging, I think, to get people to see you as serious. Do you, do you know what, Matt? Like, I remember, so starting my career, going through my career in finance, I used to be worried about those questions. Oh, God. Yeah, All those absolutely. things there. But then I got to a point now, as age thing, right? Yeah. I don't give two fucks, right? You, yeah. Uh, it's a mad thing. When you get to that point, and I look back and I can see people in their 30s or in their 20s, and I can see them. Like, yeah. I, well, I was at Canary Wolf and I saw like a bunch of 28 year olds. And they're super ambitious doing all yeah. those things. And you, it's like an act because everyone goes through the similar kind of things. You see these yeah. traits, man. I, I agree. But I guess it's a balance because it's like I want to not care. But then then I get like an academic or someone treat me like shit or treat me like like I'm not a value. Mm. You're not in a position. You're not yet. You have to care at the moment. But, That's but, the game. That's, uh, the game. That's the game. Yeah. The, and the important is not to internalise that. Yeah. So whether it's a function of their own personality or whether mm. it's, you know, them acting on what the culture is within academia itself. Mm-hmm. I think it's very much... You know, it's a cliche, but it's just staying true to yourself insofar as you can, mm. because otherwise you won't survive. You yeah. know, you can't have that public-private distinction within academia because what we're talking about, what we're doing, we do it like ten hours a day, and it's very, very close to our own lived experience mm. and our own, you know, lives. Speaking of which, that's a great segue into reminding the listeners about your research, Rima. Rima, tell the listeners about what your PhD research is focused mm-hmm. on, then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the work you've been doing yeah. at Middlesex as well. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't obviously gone and listened to my previous podcast <laughs> before <laughs> listening to this one, um, my doctoral research, which I completed in 2019, I think I graduated. I was very, very lucky to have my graduation in person before the pandemic started actually it was on the South Asian middle classes as Chantel said so it was mixed method which means that I analysed existing statistical survey data so the British election study and the citizenship survey which at that point sort of at the beginning of the 2010s had which is very rare nowadays even um, a large ethnic minority sample of people asking them about their social identities asking them about their political identities um, and then I did some interviews as well with British South Asian professionals so Indians Pakistanis Bangladeshis and I was just trying to sort of ascertain the effects I would say of social mobility on the socio-political identities of, of these types of people so is that just sorry it's just to, to cut you there for the listeners is that working out whether when the various South Asian professionals that you spoke to, whether when they become, when they transition classes, whether Mm. that makes them become more 
left wing or right wing? Well, that was absolutely one of the things that I wanted to find out. My research, it was quite exploratory at the time. I think now I'm going to bring their names in now. Now with Rishi Sunak, Preeti Patel, now with that we've known since Brexit and since the last few elections... 20, the 2010, 2015, 2017 and so on, that British Indians specifically are a big middle class sort of Tory voting base and Brexit voting base. Back then when I started around 2014, 2015, it was still very exploratory. But that was one of the things I wanted to find out. You know, when you've come from a working class background, an immigrant background as well at that, and you've sort of, you know, gone up into the stratosphere, you know, some of my participants had earning huge amounts of money, huge amounts of responsibility um, in sort of their respected professions. What sort of effect does that have on how you relate to um, your ethnic group? And we know that ethnicity and race are so bound up with class as well. How do you think of yourself in terms of class? And what sort of effect does that, does that have on the way that you think about politics? Sick and Sick. I, I think, <laughs> I think obviously what's brought into, into kind of views, the tension like you said, between the ethnic groups, right? So the idea is once you make it, are you part of the establishment? And what's your relation to your ethnic group once you're Absolutely. part of the establishment? And this is what, I guess, with black people, that's what we're having with the kind of black people who are part of the kind of neoconservative uh, wave in America or the sewer report. Oh, God. Sewer yeah. report, yeah. 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 So, I'm sure we'll bring that up later yeah. on the show. So it's, it's that, kind of, <laughs> that kind of dynamic is quite interesting, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is sort of, you know, not to jump forward, but I guess in my discourse, in my teaching, in my writing now, I can't, you know, address this issue of sort of class and race without talking exactly about, um, you know, the authors of the sewer report without talking sewer, about... Sorry, we call it the sewer, the sewer report. report. <laughs> sewer report on this show, um, as in sewage, sewer. I know. <laughs> I was really, really glad, actually, just a little segue. I organised a... I guess a, a statement or a letter or a petition back in March, April um, that was signed by hundreds and hundreds of people at my university um, that went to our VC that was um, agreed on by the executive that we would make a statement saying that the sewer report is a sewer report. I saw report. that. It was that so was a fantastic that effort. Incredible. We got huge, well, not me, but our vice chancellor at Middlesex got a huge amount of flack on Twitter. You should have seen some of the comments saying, this is not your place. You know, you should give up your role for a person of colour if you think that, you know, institutional racism exists, all this sort of stuff. But I was really, really pleased that we took a stand and a public stand against that because a lot of institutions didn't. didn't. Yeah. Silence. Exactly. Just to come back, Rima, to your um, research. So could you tell us sort of some of the key findings? Yeah. Um, or some of the key themes about how, yeah, different groups, and if we could have some ethnicised specificity as well, that mm. would be good. No, because we do, like, some, I, I do think we we could be better on this show at making the distinctions between South oh, Asian definitely. groups, like, because so, it is really important, like, obviously, as you yeah. know, it's really important because there are sharp disparities, particularly if we're talking about Bangladeshis as well. Definitely. I mean, you, you kind of, you said it, Chantel, like, the big difference, I would say, even though, so we were talking about this before we came down to the studio today, that, you know, there were issues in the PhD because Bangladeshis are a relatively small 
percentage of the population. When you're trying to analyse a specific middle class subset of them, you get into problems analytically as well because, you know, the stats aren't as quote unquote robust, but we can get into that. <laughs> but, you know, what I did found, particularly with the interviews, is that well, there's really different dynamics between Bangladeshis, Pakistanis and Indians. Even if they work in the same sector, they have the same level of responsibility and income. A lot of that is because, you know, it, it stretches back, you know, with, with we're talking about imperial colonial times, you know, these these sort of stratifications kind of stretch back. But a lot of it is, you know, what did they come with when they arrived in the UK? A lot of East African Asians, not all of them, came with capital. And by capital, I mean, you know, they, they came with language skills. They came with some form of business know-how, education, qualifications, these sorts of things. And other groups didn't you know, uh, particularly those who came from rural groups, so maybe Punjabi Sikhs, but not always Bangladeshis, Pakistanis in some cases as well. And then it's the way that you're racialized in this country and it's the way that the government plays off groups against one another. And we've seen that increasingly now. Sort of British Indians are like the Tory darling, you know, of all, you know, ethnic groups. And one of the key reasons is because they're not predominantly Muslim, you know, and this is where we get into the oh, institutionalised Islamophobia. Here we go. <laughs> right, so listeners, we're bringing back the rich faces, right, no, for so, Rima. So basically, Rima, what we were talking about was who's going to take over from Boris Johnson, right? And I was like, it's going to be Michael Gove. And then T was like, said, no, no, it's going to be Rishi. And I said, they will not have a brown prime minister. And T was like, he's not <laughs> Muslim. And I was like, shit. <laughs> And and he's a city boy, right? He's a banker. He's the banking he's guy. He's not he's a Muslim a and he's rich. And he's rich and he's a money guy. And listen, and, and obviously it's been in the press recently about him. He's the one that's been signing off all the good stuff of the pandemic, right? So most importantly, all the contracts they handed out, who signed them off? He had to because he is the finance. With his little signature yeah. fee. So all the people, all every, every group that got money from the working classes to his rich pals, it's down to him, not Boris Johnson. <laughs> it is interesting. I need to, we need to hear. I don't Rima's, like to boast. Listen, we need to listen. hear. Rima, we need to hear Rima's full <laughs> thoughts on it. But yeah, there is. The British public are very much enticed by money and Islamophobia, and it does feel like yeah. Rishi yeah. ticks those. But equally, I'm like. But then Michael Gove. And listen, Rishi is not taking. Have you noticed? So even politically, whenever stuff's gone badly, he's never to be seen. About Greensill. Green, who's the, the main protagonist? David Cameron. Exactly. Fine. Reese's slick, man. Yeah. But we don't say, not slick as in like good, like we fucking hate him. But like, <laughs> 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 but like for the purpose of the Rishi thesis. For the purpose of the Rishi thesis. Contextualise the thesis. Right. Rima, he's, tell us he's about... He's not sloppy as well. He keeps receipts. He's very yeah. low-key. He's not overly political. And, you know, whenever there has been questionable things in the past to do particularly with his wife's billionaire, (laughs) multi-billionaire family and funds, the contracts that he's given out as well, you know, those sort of private behind the scenes handshake sort of deals. Again, he's very much, well, I've done everything by the book, you know, and this has been audited and this is absolutely fine, you know, that sort of thing. So he is slick. But again, Boris Johnson is the complete antithesis of slick. I don't think he's completely lost public favour either. So whether some, whether people are willing to go completely the other way is is yet to be no, seen. No, no, Rima, on a, it's not about public favour with Boris Johnson. He hasn't got enough cash. Um, <laughs> he needs to make more money. He's got too many kids. He's got he's got his new wife. He's popping out more kids. 
he it's needs like, more cash. He's going to quit because he doesn't want. He actually doesn't even want to do it. He no. doesn't want it. He doesn't want to work, and he also needs more cash. He can make more cash not being prime minister. Do you know what is? So it's who's going to replace him? I think at the moment, Boris Johnson. I think what we haven't done is foreground power into it. Boris Johnson's skin, but he has that power, mm. and that like like with Trump. Trump doesn't need the money or be there, but it's and, and in fact it restricts him because he can he could do he could do more as a private citizen, but they're mm. addicted to that power. Yeah. Mm. And so Boris Johnson might might stay for the power, but listen, what we've known from the Tories historically, if that leader jeopardizes their electoral fortunes going forward, and he and it looks like he's bungling it, right? So they'll replace you. It won't come from the people, it'll come from internally. And this is what the Tory party are famous for. So Brexit is effectively an internal argument from the Tory party that's gone live, right? So yeah. it, they were Eurosceptics at one point, and then next we know we've got Brexit, <laughs> right? Yeah, I agree with you, T. And with regards to just wrapping up the Rishi thesis, I think that it's almost becoming a bit of a David Davis situation, as in it's almost becoming too obvious. You know, it was like David Davis is going to be the next Prime no, David Davis yeah, is going to yeah. be the next Tory leader, Tory yeah, leader, yeah, yeah. and then David Cameron came in round the back. But Who could come round no, the no back? One. No, no one. one. No one. I'm, I swear that because, because listeners, you'll know that me and Tisa have got a hundred pound bet on this. So. <laughs> no, 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 wait, so wait, we actually no. have got a hundred pound so bet. Like, you're very invested. Yeah, we no, are invested. No, Tory politics. Janda threw that in the gauntlet. She went like hundred pounds. I was like, raw boy, I haven't got that kind of pee. You get me? I swear, on trainers, man. Yeah. I just couldn't imagine. Yeah. The Prime Minister being a brown man, but actually, like in this panoramic 2021 sewer report madness mm. of a plague island yeah yeah but again it's you know sort of what is he i mean i wouldn't know how he would portray himself on that campaign trail it's a complete question mark to me and i think that is what his success will hinge on if, if he chooses to go down that route so now this, this is what's quite interesting as i was thinking about your research Rima. what i think when you said how the southeast asians are kind of Tory voting darling like the Indians, the Indians specifically yeah, the Indians. yeah so I think what happens is he remains neutral and people will impart their stereotypes onto him like I don't know like whatever the stereotype, yep. whatever the positive stereotypes are related yeah. to, to that particular group they will impart it and so that's what I was thinking in terms of oh like, they're good at getting the job yeah, done exactly. or like oh, yeah. Yeah, that, they're good with money they work hard He's, yeah. they do diligent and he, they're not going to be extremists they're quite and all yeah. those kind of negative, those stereotypes, yeah. and they will, the public will impart that onto him. All he has to do is just remain yeah. like, neutral. Yeah. But how do those stereotypes and in the context of gender affect mm. people? How people view Pretty Patel? Yeah. So you know there is, and and this is why it's really. Sorry, Rima, when you, we're not, we've not brought you in as in like uh, <laughs> like our South Asian power to answer all the South Asian no, questions. I'm more than happy to be that person though because I spend every day thinking about and I am within, I'm very much embedded within the community, you know, and yeah. one of my regrets in my PhD, I guess, is not um, foregrounding my own reflexivity enough and being mm. more honest about that. And people had said to me in the process, you're just researching people like you, aren't mm. you? You know, is this some sort of kind of odd sort of journey you're going on psychologically and I'm just like well no but you know it's it's my life mm -hmm. as well you know my my husband's family are partly East African Indian Hindu and my dad's uh, and my mum's are from India and they're, they're Sikh and Hindu and seemingly very different backgrounds but very much within this socially mobile everyone owns a care home or is a pharmacist or a doctor or an accountant oh you drink as well 
and we drink. We're not threatening in that way. We do the things that British people do, and that's, <laughs> and that's good, you know. And, you know, we go out and we have fun and this sort of stuff. And so that's non-threatening, essentially. In relation to Preeti Patel... It's really difficult because I see people saying things about her on Twitter and secretly I'm just like, yes, she's an awful, awful human being. But there is a gender dimension and dynamic there, which which we can't ignore. And I think which which hasn't yet been addressed because all that has been talked about and discussed is her horrible, horrible disgust, not disgust. But I have been disgusted by just just the, the complete and utter disregard with which she addresses and approaches the humanity of of, of people of colour, of immigrants, of refugees, and so on and so forth. It's when she grins. What is that? I know, I know. It's the grin. It's <laughs> yeah. the grin. That's, that's taking it deep. I didn't even notice the you grin. You not notice the grin? No, listen, I... It's when she's grrinning. When, yeah. when someone basically really says, when someone basically yeah. says to her, like, on camera, like, are we going to address the humanity of these people? And she's like, not today. And then smiles. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, let's you talk know. gender. And let's the policing it. and the bordering aspect of this. And, you know, as, as, as of yet, I've not seen her really show any investment in sort of women yes mm. <laughs> thank you for that yeah. picture of the smirk it's like a one-sided thing as well mm-hmm. it's just like i don't want to smile but i'm evil so i can't mm-hmm. help it mm-hmm. sort of oh we've got thing. don't worry we've got we've got what well, we've got kemi equalities minister yeah, yeah. we've got oh, we've got yeah. we've got we've got our we've got, own i mean there you go yeah you know, exactly do, there, are, there are prominent muslims and there are pro- prominent no, black, black people as well yeah. within the cabinet and it's really, you know, I'm writing a paper at the moment with Nima Bagan. Oh, we love Nima. Big yes. up Nima. And Mike Bancoli. Oh, amazing. Yes. Um, which we're going to present next week. For those of you listening later, that would be sort of mid-September 21. We wanted to write about ethnic minority conservatism and populism. Um, there's such little literature on, on the, like, the, you know, class fractions, you might call it, of... Um, black Caribbean and black African populations who are conservative mm-hmm. or who are and or socially mobile. There's a lot more on British South Asians, so we've sort of gone back down that route. But um, yeah, those dynamics are really, really interesting. And some of the stuff Kemi has said about CRT as well, it's not completely critical unsurprising. Race th- critical race theory, just yeah. listeners. Yeah. Critical race theory. It's not completely unsurprising because I do have students come to me, some of my black students, my black female students as well, who do think, okay, you know, it's very pessimistic. It's very negative. But I think it's the way that we teach it, the way that we approach it, the way that we kind of understand critical race theory. I think um, Jean Beeman, who's who's looked at um, some of the, the issues that, that I look at in my doctoral research as well, um, this idea of middle classness and belonging amongst minority groups, and she's looked at um, that in the context of France, also says we need to come back and we need to think about, you know, CRT is not about saying you're victimised, you've got no control, you've got no agency, you've got no power. You know, it's about understanding the machinations of institutional racism and how that is reproduced or filtered through people in all different subsections in society, mm. you know, um, so that's why my thesis was called Between Privilege and Prejudice, because it's not either or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. Yeah. I've just come back to your student that comes up, that came up to you and was like, this it all feels really negative. I think particularly in this current conjuncture, mm-hmm. like, f- like, where is the hope? Mm. I guess as you're learning about critical race theory and you're understanding, okay, so this is why that happened to my mum. This is why that's happening to my uncle. This is why this is happening to me. 
what can I do about it? Oh, nothing, because we've got author- authoritarian capitalism. So it is like it is. You do feel yeah. like where is the where is the hope? Where is my yeah. where is our leadership that is fighting against yeah. institutional racism? We don't have it. Mm. So I guess I so I do em- I empathise yeah. with that student, but equally like the right way to go isn't believing that you're gonna that things are gonna be better. Like that's yeah. what they would tell you. Do you know yeah. what I think it is. I think it is things like CRT. They 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 um add to what disenchantment right so I imagine like that's the idea of the, the voice with the with the veil what what CRT does it brings the sharp reflection reality and once you start seeing the reality you're thinking well I want to go back I'd rather have that have that ignorance that veil of ignorance to kind of mm. to feel that happiness that you used to feel but oh, well it's not happiness but you don't, yeah. you're not really aware right but now once you bring those things to sharp into sharp reflection you start seeing things how things really are and it's quite depressing because you think Absolutely. right you think it was this is a situation yeah. I'm in. But I think we all have sort of a responsibility to, you know, as, as Tiso said, sort of shine, shine a light on <laughs> these things. Because the, the paper that I wrote with Ali a few years ago, Ali Megji, was yeah. about how we can reproduce post-racialism and in turn benefit sort of white supremacy if we don't... Um, you know, uh, say, okay, we've been successful, we've got here, we've achieved this, but it was really hard and perhaps we are the exception. Um, It's not about um, amplifying our own personal successes or experiences that may be positive um, to our whole group and saying, well, actually, you're the reason why you're not successful or you're the reason why you're unhappy, Mm -hmm. you know, or you're the reason why your particular ethnic group have not done well. That's really damaging and really harmful, you know. Um, but I think, you know, I would say the young, like people in their 20s nowadays, I think because of especially the climate catastrophe, um, they're a lot more ready to link all of these up together within the larger sort of kind of neoliberal um, authoritarian, as Chantel mm. said, machinations of what's going on. Um, and I they're a lot that more word. sophisticated. You just said, you just said yeah. that again, machinations. I, I, I love that, that word. It's a sick word, isn't it? What is it? What's it mean? Um, machinations. I guess, um, you know, it's it's... The process, so things that are happening, you know, what's going on, but, you know, machination sort of sounds like it's engineered and it is in a way by elites, mm, essentially. So okay. that's why I like it, I guess. Oh, I like it. No, I agree with you. And younger people as well, like climate catastrophe, no housing, no jobs, pandemic. There's a revolution. Yeah. The younger generations, they're not they're not as um, embedded in that kind of neoliberalist um, agenda that we, well, definitely my generation, that's what it's for. That's what you brought up to believe in yes. and to, to live out. And this is the way you're going to survive. Yeah. Yeah. To aspire you, to. And this is, yeah. the, we, we're very kind of tightly wedded to that. Mm. But these guys, it's a bit more diffuse. They, they're still influenced by it, but in a more consumer spent. So they don't really have that kind of, that kind of narrow idea to make money, 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 but they're kind of. Yeah. yeah. No, I hear yeah, you. Yeah. And I think it's a shame we don't have someone from Gen Z on the show today, but T, you're, <laughs> yeah, considered Gen X. I think we're both millennials. Yeah. I was 88, so I think that... Yeah, we're millennial. Am I? Yeah. Oh. What did you want to be? Gen Z? Baby boomer, no. Oh, baby <laughs> <laughs> Um 45, someone give me a house. <laughs> yeah. We're considered by some Gen Zs as millennials, yeah. apathetic. Yeah, yeah. I, you guys were fucked over by baby boomers. Oh, we're all fucked over by baby boomers. I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, so I... Well, so generic, so I'm well, at the start of Thatcher. So I'm, I'm a true Thatcher, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. Thatcher baby. Grew yes. up in the era, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So... So I guess the best idea kind of when someone said to me once that who embodies that kind of generation is, you know, Harry Enfield's um, yeah. character, loads of money. 
a working class, and he, all he talked about was loads of money. I want loads oh, of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so a working class person, that's just, it's, they've been given that kind of step up by the middle classes. Mm. They're all very obsessed about money and buying properties mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. very selfish. Mm-hmm. No, I completely, completely get that vibe, especially since I've moved to Hertfordshire. Babes, <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying about Hertfordshire? Um, just the houses and the cars. Like Everyone's got a Tesla, you know? Yeah, that's the new thing. Why has everyone got a Tesla? It's, it's ugly. like a status. It's They're so st- ugly. It's a status thing. Like I go around, thing. yeah, you go around. But listen, I went inside one. Nice? They're kind of sick still. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of sick. Listen. I mean, you just the door handle is like you can't get because it's flush against the door, so you've got to like push in the handle and then the other side pops out. And I'm just like, no, no how no? no. But, but, I just want a normal door handle. But I'm a and tech a key. guy. I'm a tech guy, so I saw the yeah. I saw the screen and it's like got 3D things of the cars. I'm like that, oh, six the future. It's going to fly. They're going to fly. Gonna fly. <laughs> I know, hover cars. So those born 81 to 96 are millennials. Gen Z, 96 or after. Um, Gen X, 65 to 80. And then boomers are 46 to 64. So in that post-war period. We had Steve Roberts, we had him on the show, talks mm-hmm. about um, social generation theory. Even though we can make sort of sweeping statements about sort of generations, he kind of says we shouldn't use it too much. We should actually focus more on what are the consistencies across generations and the consistencies tend to be poverty, Absolutely. capitalism, elitism, yeah, yeah. racism. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, one thing that we perhaps don't draw attention to is where do where does the immigrant generation fall into the stereotypes that are made about these generations, mm-hmm. you know? I was just going to say as well, and I don't know how this relates to your research, but I was talking to I was talking to a friend earlier. I'm seeing my dad tonight. We're going to the theatre. Look at us, look at us, black middle class. What and are even you going to say? Um, I'm not going to say what we're going to see because um, I read the description, and honestly, like one of it's one of the activities that I do with my dad. We we will go to the theatre together. I am not convinced he knows what's happening in the show because I, I don't know what's happening. Like we go to like these really like he's like, like yeah yeah like yeah. as in yeah. these really like theatre theatre like monologue shows yeah. and like I, like I've got ADHD so like I treat it as like as, as times just sit and just focus as in like because I don't have many of those times. Anyway, why am I saying this to you? Right, I'm seeing my dad there and I was talking to my friend about I'm going to see my dad. My dad, although he definitely ingrained in me like a political consciousness, like, and he like protested, he was involved in like the riots in the 80s, like, for like, literally got stabbed by the National Front, um, protest for apartheid, mm. all this stuff. But he's a Blairite, no doubt mm. about it. And he's a bit, he's a centrist as well. And he's like a, what are they called? FBPPE Remainers. Oh, like, yes. like, as in, like, he's a hardcore okay. Remainer. FBPE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, all that stuff. Blue Heart for the Nurses. And it's still love Blair. <laughs> it's so interesting, like, generationally. Like, my dad's an immigrant. The way we kind of just don't really click on politics now is really interesting. Like, we actually don't agree on maybe more things than not now. And what I find interesting about that is me and you, like there's, there are black people or immigrants and black and brown people that are older than me that I agree on everything with. Yeah. And I'm like, why did that happen to you? Like, yeah, why did yeah. you become like, cause you became socially mobile through work, but you were, you are, you were working class and now you're more like lower middle class. Oh, me? No, no, no. I'm talking about oh, my dad. Okay, so I'm yeah, sorry. I'm yeah. having an anecdote. Sorry, sorry. No, what's no, no, it's all I'm right. just sort of, why? so why did he, why yeah. does he think that 
like people need to pull themselves up by their bootstrap but equally we need a centrist Labour government I mean part of that might be a function of age yeah and I have found myself recently <laughs> are you dabbling are you dabbling Reba I completely overwork myself I get resentful and I'll say well why aren't you working as hard as me yeah, you yeah. young whippersnappers but I would never <laughs> you young whippersnappers I am a boomer aren't I <laughs> yeah I don't know if it's because when struggle when you're able to turn like what you're talking about in your paper with Ali when you're able to turn struggle into success do, do you internalise that and individualise that because I would like to think that I will remain as compassionate. I think I'm a compassionate person. I think I will remain that way, that way. I also feel like people shouldn't have to work hard, to be honest. Like, I think yeah. it's overrated. Yeah. Um. So where does that come from with some with some immigrant mm. families, with some immigrant yeah. people? Like, why, why do we have that? It's a very strong pull because there is this, you know, we came here with nothing and look what we've made. You know, it is possible, it is achievable. But there's no deconstruction of, you know, this idea of what is acceptable and conceivable in terms of working hard you know no one should have to work 18 hours a day to be able to make a living thank you no one should have to never take a holiday no one should have to never have childcare like my parents used to have three of us babies in the shop you know my mum came back to work what two days after she got pregnant uh, mm. she she gave birth um to my second sister who was born 11 months after my first one you know it's ridiculous but um but then there's also this odd thing, and I was talking to my husband about this. Now they don't want me to work hard. They want me to chill out, relax, and, and somehow have just come into lots of money because they were like, well, we did that sacrifice for you and we made it and now you've made it. So why are you working this hard, Rima? You know? So I think because maybe that still- is breaking down a little because now they're realising, oh, well, actually, you know, nothing has changed. no. And really, like in answer to your to your parents, and I guess where I think I think me and da- my dad can meet on this now, that neoliberalism, capitalism, the project has failed. No one's got any cash. Absolutely, no, absolutely. I, no I, the project's failed. But I think they think, especially if you're a boomer generation, they think they've made a sacrifice, right? And they they see the sacrifice that they've made for you. So if you've got into university or that was whatever their goal was, you've got you've, you've become a doctor or you become mm. you've you've done it. So they yeah. think by by their definition, you've assimilated, you've done what you meant to yes. do, but not understanding how racism is a social dynamic that keeps changing. So About, you might yeah. you might you might have become that doctor, but that shit that system's still there. Absolutely. And now you can't buy a house for. 12 13,000 pounds no. which is what my dad bought his first house yeah. with you know um so i think you know there's there's not enough of this sort of critical political discussion i think that goes on in in immigrant and especially south asian families about this is you know neoliberal capitalism you keep voting for the tories they're not going to do anything about the housing market and there's this very sort of objective way in which people this is what the housing market is you know that freehand economics there is no intervention that anyone can have this is never going to change um and that is completely sort of devolving agency and responsibility that that we have as communities and individuals to um you know affect trying to do what we can affect some political change or at least affect some discourse around what's happening but it's really difficult to approach these conversations within my family anyway personally why do you think that is um because i sound petulant i sound pessimistic i sound like a university student going out on her first protest a lot of that is gendered i think Mm -hmm. as well you know people 
you know, in my family, I don't think they necessarily um, will accept any authority that I have on knowing things about politics and sociology. Um, well, as in, so, yeah. as in you, the critical race theorist, statistician, yeah. doctorate. Yeah. Listen. But is it a kind of a cultural thing? So I'm just thinking personally from the guys that I know growing up, the Bangladeshi guys, but from not from Dhaka, from, they're from Select. Yes. So there is a kind of generational thing. So respect for your elders. So even if you might be talking like what the situation is now, out of deference, respect for your elders, like you need to just sh- mm. like be quite respectful to tradition and all yeah. those kind of things there. So I, it's quite interesting what you said about what they come with like from from where from when they're from. Yeah. So these guys have come from Silette, so they don't really have much. So when they come over here, the way they're racialised, they're at the bottom, so they're more likely to be left-leaning, a bit more radical. Yeah. So it's quite interesting that Abs- how that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I saw that in my in my doctoral research in relation to some of the, particularly the first generation mm-hmm. middle-class Bangladeshi legal professionals who were very much happy to be embedded within, not happy, but they were very much embedded within their own communities, practising there, serving that community. And, you know, that proximity to... Uh, their ethnic group, their proximity to that community, a community which has sort of working class histories, but also working class realities in a lot of cases, does influence politics a lot. And that was a surprising, but not surprising, I guess, sort of finding in the last chapter of my thesis, I think. Um, And in terms of this sort of, there's some research that has been done in America on on Asian Americans, specifically in sort of the myth of meritocracy, sort of stuff that Bridget Anderson has talked about. And, you know, one of the findings or some of the findings in relation to that particular group are if you criticise the country or the system that you have come into, you've immigrated, you've packed up everything, flown across the world trying to make a life. And if you criticise that, are you sort of looking down or criticising your own decisions and your own path? You know, you want to create this seamless, positive, linear image of progress you know we've done the right thing we've come to a country that accepts us and that is good and that is right and I made the right choice so by saying this country is pants you know is that you know essentially just um denigrating all the decisions that you or your parents generation or your grandparents generation have made in deciding to to emigrate so there is that sort of dynamic at play as well does that make sense it really does and I've never really thought about it like that there's like another layer to it it's like actually we need. This is the hill we've got to die on because no. we this we came. We hear it in when they when when uh, when white people say, "Well, why did you come here then? If you mm. don't, if it's that bad." So that's yeah. the most that's the most vulgar expression of it. Leave if you don't like it. Mm. But what we're having is so it, it comes down to that kind of critical debate where what is what is a patriot, right? A, a true patriot in the kind of 18th century notion is someone that loves their country but can be critical of that country. And what we are in now is a nationalist debate. A nationalist can never say anything bad about the place that they're at. It's always the good stuff. So this is why the history we have is a nationalist version of history. It's not critical. It's unthinking. And this is the debate we're having now. So people have, they've kind of misappropriated the word. People call themselves patriots, but they're not. Mm -hmm. They're really nationalists because they're not talking. So when they're talking about statues or whatever it is, it's that nationalist view of it. But Mm -hmm. we are, to have to, to be an immigrant to come with you, you're patriotic. You might love the motherland, but if you're an immigrant, you understand how bad it's been for you at the bottom. So when our when our first generation people come over here, 
they understand what it's like, but they still they still love the country and still speak out about it in a very very um, heartwarming tones. But they're still very they still love it, but they're critical of it and they'll tell you the bad stuff about the country. Just coming back to the white per- the hypothetical um, white mm. person that says if you don't like it, go back, mm. and it made me think about how maybe think about um Gaminda Bambra's scholarship on thinking about beyond the island and thinking going back to thinking about empire so actually like I think all the stuff you've just said stands T but I guess the conversation or the pushback that mm. maybe a lot of us have been trying well people have been trying to do within yeah. um sociology social sciences for decades and decades is about saying to that white person like I am here because you were there. But yeah, like yeah. it's all it's all that stuff, isn't it? So it's like actually we're not we're physically on this island, but we're all part of loads of islands together that mm. were colonized. So it's the the physical existence of us here is because of that colonization of our country. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I know yeah. that's I know I'm putting like no, no. some very, very brilliant scholarship into very simplistic terms but i guess and that that pushback to that white person saying that i guess is maybe what we can talk talk about in the next part of this episode is what we've been seeing over the past year I, since the pandemic and black lives matter but, but i think also I'd add, it's it's trying to reconcile what we were what always comes up reconciling that we're all interlinked in some way and exactly and yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's those yeah. kind of build and it's hard for people to understand how we can be linked because at the same time, we all we all talk explicitly in in nationalist tones, right? So Absolutely. this is the UK, or this is a national business, or whatever it will be. Yeah. But so there is a an essentialism that sits there within us. But we also know practically that I'm a even our national dishes. Tea is not a British dish; it's from, it's from India and China, mm-hmm. and it's it's reconciling all these things that have built up over time. Absolutely. So it's it's a, it's a difficult conversation because it's not very it's not very clear. It's very messy. And people take sides. Yeah. We take sides, and right? And it's a-contextual and it's a-historical mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's fundamentally, you know, symbolically and structurally violent. So Gaminda Bamber has talked about this idea of methodological nationalism and that's exactly what, what you're talking about, Tiso, isn't it? That um, we, we think, you know, in the context of nation states, completely constructed and completely, you know, the boundaries between these nation states are what allows people like Preeti Patel and our other ruling elites to say no you cannot come in and you can come in and you can't and you can and construct this sort of very um affected sort of national kind of demographic it's really really harmful because we reproduce that as well then don't we you know mm-hmm. and then we you know in some of the the survey data that i've analyzed or looked at you know it pits you know do you feel more british or do you feel more indian india was when my dad was born india was british you know and um, you know Britain and Indian citizens were actually British citizens at that time, you know, if you can believe it, (laughs) you know, Um, and beyond this sort of sanitized Commonwealth image, you know, that's something that we have completely forgotten. And, you know, people like Gaminda do really, really try and, you know, she talks about how the welfare state, for example, in in, in the UK is a function of um, and was funded by kind of imperial activities. That's it. And Kugo Majula as well, as Gaminda does that as well. And when I hear them both talk about that, I'm like, shit, I need to sit down. Because I'll sit here and be like, I'm sat in this room because of the welfare state. But I am Mm. sat in this room because of the welfare state. But equally, people have died so I can have the welfare state. Do you know what I mean? Like when I first heard, when I heard first. Our ancestors. Yeah, when I first heard both of them present on that, I was like, whoa. 
that's a lot like absolutely and then people talk about the nhs and the welfare state as this fantastic or not so fantastic sort of british institution um and immediately what what you think about british is sort of our bounded isle and mm-hmm. the white population and it's the white elites that constructed yeah. that. but it, like i said it, it comes back to the essentialism so in most people think of the nation state welfare state story as something like you said essentially british right and not making that connection to the the kind of roots that we're talking about and that's because once you do that it complicates things and mm. you start thinking shit like like you said that realization that someone died for me to have a decent life yeah but it goes back to what i said yesterday like <laughs> we're all kind of we're a global woman but what most of us doing about it throwing stuff away and thinking yeah it's cool but you are understanding yeah. what the situation is, right? Mm. But once you think of once you think of the enormity, you start thinking, "Shit, mm. maybe I better stop." And once that. you start connecting yourself more viscerally to people across the world who are really mm-hmm. suffering from it, then it becomes a much larger responsibility exactly. in life. And that's something that obviously, you know, the government is not interested in because it would mean that we start sort of sharing our wealth, I guess, mm. yep. with other nations, and they're not interested in that at all. No, yeah. definitely not. It would be really good to get some anecdotal thoughts from you on the past sort of year with regards to being um, an academic that specialises in race and class. Thinking about um, June 2020, um, the Black Lives Matter uprisings, yeah. thinking about the assault that we're seeing on the humanities um, in the UK, also like the free speech people, which actually what they want is freedom to be racist, transphobic, <laughs> homophobic. Um, just, it's a it's a bit of a peak time, I think, to be people like us that specialise um, in race and class because we're being we're we're being attacked at all sides now. Like yeah. what? Like government, media, yeah. peers, colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in academia, I I don't you know, your Eric Kaufman's and so on and so forth. You know, I, I never rated them. I always thought, okay, he's head of department at, at Birkbeck, but he's an absolute fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, recently we found out that Lisa Tilly has, has resigned mm-hmm. because of, you know, just how insidious he actually is. So it's really having repercussions for what our departments look like. It's really having repercussions for our own sense of belonging um, and our own scholarship and our own teaching within our sociology departments, within our, our higher education institutions. So it is getting more visceral and more worrying to me. I can't keep on dismissing people like him mm. um, and, you know, the other sort of academic free speech lobby people as just crackpots, mm. you know. I feel fortunate within Middlesex University that I've got, and, and obviously I'm not a huge fan of the word allies, but I do have people that, you know, I feel... Um, are as invested in critical race theory and these other critical theories and, and interventions. interventions as I am. But then again, we are seeing this kind of very sort of superficial approach to EDI and decolonization that's happening within institutions. And I want to be a part of those conversations, I am. But I also have to sit with that cognitive dissonance. You know, what's happened over the past year, 18 months has been I think really positive for affecting these conversations but it's also led to a lot of sort of lip service sort of superficial movements towards black squareism diversity you know yeah rather than sort of um kind of radical action and intervention as you said yeah and equity absolutely you know just these fundamental conversations that I'm still having to have can we drop the word equality people can we drop the word diversity equity 
touch or can we you know think about what about social justice what does social justice mean and racial justice look like within the context of the university so it's an ongoing struggle and it really exhausted me last summer Mm. I felt really burnt out but it's been a while now and having these sorts of conversations and having more power decision making power within the university and within the field as well has lent me sort of much more I guess sort of comfort in terms of being able to be honest about what I feel about uh, these things and I've had some research out a paper published in politics recently big up Rima thank you finally Dr Saini come on (laughs) about um, quantitative methods teaching specifically you know and how the way that we use and particularly the way that we teach statistics can be or should be sort of decolonized or approached in a decolonial way and in that particular niche that I found with colleagues that I really love and esteem I feel like I'm doing something really worthwhile now I, but see what's interesting to me is and especially in our, in our humanities and social sciences is the origins of our of our um, disciplines right and so our origins tend to be in the colonial imperial era, right? So Absolutely. But what I'm seeing is I view it as us or uh, the whole generation of immigrant children are in the system and now we're challenging that dynamic. And so for a long time, so you, effectively what you have is the old guard versus the new guard. And that's, it was kind of brought to a head in uh, June 2020. So that's the start of that kind of, if, if the dam breaking because it's building up, but the dam is broken but there's a challenge now. So you have the old guard who are traditional and they're stuck there and they have a vested interest. So Eric Kaufman and all mm. these guys are pushing back because they feel challenged now and they feel that this is their times and their discipline that they've grown to love and that's been canonized is being challenged in such a way, in a way that they can't really dispute because they taught us those methods. And so all of a sudden you're using our logic against us. Mm. And so this, they have a very difficult time in argument mm. because we're doing peer reviewed uh, articles now. So we're using their epistemology to challenge what effectively has been taught for the last, what, mm. 150 years? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the fact that Eric Kaufman has gained sort of such traction or support outside of academia, I think shows that there are plenty of people within academia who are willing to, to say and think exactly the same things as you did, T. So mm. about him, and are willing to challenge him, and are willing to to show that the basis of what he thinks is not only methodologically spurious and you know politically kind of out of line, completely out of line, out and out racist, mm. you know. But but then you've you've got people outside who lap it up, mm. you know? and you've all, and and I also think, and these are the people which I have the most issue with. I think uh, there are some people that are apathetic as well mm. and I feel like that's sociology's middle name particularly when it comes to race, race and class is like apathy and I don't want to take away from the people that we obviously like we run this show we have loads of people come on this show that are absolutely amazing people like yourselves and there's so many people that are doing brilliant work but I do think that there is like going full circle like me saying do you think I'm a serious person <laughs> there is still there is there is a group of people within within whether it's journalists, academics, people that want to talk about these issues, politics, that are struggling with the idea that they need to share share intellectualism with us because they've had they've held it. Even if even if these are these are like lefty people as well, like they were the authority and actually we're saying yeah, 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 we agree with most things you're saying, but what about this? Mm. What about that? And I think these are actually the people, like your Kaufman, yeah, 
dickhead. I wouldn't even say he 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 speaks or writes no. intellectually. Yeah, at all, so like we can do him, but actually like there's other people that are like in the middle Absolutely. that I'm like, I need you to take me seriously, mm. um, cause you don't. And when I say me, I mean that in the in the broad, not me as yeah. an individual. I mean that broadly. I think we, I think what's interesting is is the is what technology has done is decentralized information and knowledge and power. So you have m- all these people that f- who are almost voiceless, quiet now have voices. Mm-hmm. So we have a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So ten years ago, when I was growing up, someone like me, my my peer group didn't have a pair. So I, in my generation, I witnessed people who were on the streets start going pirate radio stations mm. but it was it was illegal right so our voices were shut down mm. but now with, with the advent of technology many voices are being heard and so you have people who are gatekeepers that like they're shook yeah yeah so for, for yeah. Give, just give find an example sorry i'm being a bit am i being a bit like individualized no, here cool. find an example yeah just talking about so we're we're a sociology podcast right we're probably the biggest sociology podcast in the UK. Yes, we are. We've been running for four years <laughs> now. Do you know how most popular, most popular, most popular sociology podcast in the UK? You are on so many reading. Lists I know. I keep getting told so this. So many sociology departments. But do you know when we talk, when we get, when we get our criticisms, Reba, it's that that we're not, we're not rigorous. And that because we because we talk about different oh. subjects each episode, that we're somehow not intellectually um, robust. Robust. Given the example of Swim Society, but more broadly, like you, you apathetic sociologists, come on. No, I we think, need you. Yeah, I completely understand how you feel, and mm. I'm still, you know, I will s- stay up at night re- reading and rereading and rereading some journal articles that are, are written in such a deliberately obfuscatory, confusing way because I'm like, if I can can understand and, and begin to write like this and think like this and speak like this that's my key to you know that that top uh, part of the ivory tower um but i think gradually i'm realizing that you know it's all illusion it's all constructed it's all an imaginary um and we are here now and we can create the sort of discourse the sort of platforms that we want um sociology is not a fixed element you know um it is you know a tool of power absolutely and there are interests vested interests out there who are trying to keep it as it is but i'm fed up of feeling that i'm stupid or Mm -hmm. feeling bad about myself i've got published articles i've got a full-time job i've got students who esteem me who have written things about me and their feedback that make me cry and that is really really valuable and important you know and I think you guys with what you've done so far you know especially you Chantel you need to sort of take that away and sit with that um and (laughs) and own it as the gen zers zeders say yeah what what say yeah millennials we're we're not we're not bold enough are we no not at all no. Some, no. But, but this is the thing and i think what you're saying Arima, makes sense i think our parents uh version was you assimilate right so assimilation means that you just kind of there in the background but the difference is now we have agency Absolutely. and agency in a different yeah. way so yeah. I, that's I'm, it that's it so i'm not looking to do a pretty patel or reach a to, as i'm lifting the drawbridge i have agency so i'm aware of this structural matters and i'm looking to change that and this is what's different now, right? So we're saying, like, listen, it's not an individualized thing because there's there's always an exception to the rule. There's always some successful people, but I'm looking to change the system so they can be, so we can have, so we can not even be. In, I am 
British. I'm from here. I'm a mm. London, whatever it is. Yeah. I am from here and I'm going to have agency. And that's what people, it's kind of shocking, really. It's quite, it's quite radical. But um, yeah. I love that. Completely that's agree, great, yeah. That's a great place to end to. Thank yeah, you for that. Agency. It's, it's the trainers, right? It's the trainers. What are they called? Sneakers Harachi. Listen, you, you're only going to see me in these. Honestly, see. he's this. I, mean, I just can't stop looking I, at them. I've never <laughs> seen you wear trainers no, two days in a row. I said it, my dad just won. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and what's special about these? That they drop, they dropped on one day only. So read the date. Read the date. Eight eight twenty one. The eighth of August, twenty twenty one. They came out. You're not advertising Nike. All right. Nike. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. And, and if you want to send me free trainers, boom. Go on. Go on. Rima, Rima, thank you so much for joining us. That was such an enriching conversation. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. I say always, like I'm on here every week. No, but you are. Your your spirit is yeah. your yeah. your critical spirit is definitely something which and, we carry uh, on the show. You know, show. we've survived, and and that is just absolutely phenomenal. We've not yeah. just survived; we've thrived. And um, touch wood. And I'm turning into my mum. You <laughs> <laughs> have to carry a wooden plank around with me at all times. Um, and, and I just think what you're doing with this podcast is, you know, is fantastic and, and keep you. on at it. Oh, thank you so much, Rima. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for joining us as usual. And we will see you again next week. See you next week. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to the T's and C's with T's and Chantel. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram.